0: I realized the Declaration's actually a covenant, and it was a covenant that our founders made with God to start this nation.
1: I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Grey Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Grey Matter. Well, you know, many people don't like to hear this, but nations such as the United States and Canada were founded as Christian nations. In the United States, they're described as one nation under God. In the Canadian Constitution, it states specifically that all of our laws are subject to the supremacy of God and the rule of law. But as we look around today and we experience what's happening uh, in our communities, in our universities, in our schools, and even in our churches, let alone what's happening in our government, it doesn't look very much like God is present. It certainly doesn't look like we're, we're operating things on any sort of Christian basis. Uh, many of us are very concerned about that. Not the least of whom is our guest who's taken the time to actually write a book about it. Uh, and his name is Mark Burrell. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for being with us today on Grey Matter.
0: Thanks for having me, Leighton.
1: Okay. I'm excited to talk to you about your book and the other work that you've been doing. Uh, before we get there, uh, we have some framing aphorisms on, on our show that have been, uh, selected in your honor. These are some Titans of, uh, American history, uh, of originalist American history, uh, one of whom is, uh, John Adams, who, who wrote this. He says, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Uh, George Washington said, It is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. Thomas Jefferson said, I have examined all as well as my narrow sphere. My straitened means and my busy life would allow me. And the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. Uh, and uh, one more from your website. This is from Alexander Hamilton. For my part, I sincerely esteem the constitution, a system which without the finger of God never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests." So Mark, perhaps we could start, uh, as it were, <laughs> at the beginning. Um, how did you, uh, what, what motivated you to, to begin researching and writing this book? What, what, what was the, What was your inspiration for doing this?
0: So, uh, I've had a Bible teaching ministry for over 30 years. And uh, one of the most important parts of that journey for me was a a mentor that I had that took me through systematic theology early on. And I grew up in the Episcopal Church, but I didn't learn much. (laughs) And so, uh, I have an engineering background and I really wanted to better understand is the Bible like reasonable and does it make sense? And I had all these questions and and so I got rooted in that for a few years with my mentor. And at the same time, I grew up just outside of Philadelphia. And, and so I grew up, you know, going to Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and all these areas and uh, was always taught that we were a Christian nation, as you mentioned at the with your intro. But the question that was nagging at me, and it started with this question, was if the revolution was all about, you know, taxation without representation, which... Uh, you know, the, and the Bible says that we should pay our taxes. The <laughs> nagging tension I had in my head was, well, how could the revolution have been biblically justifiable if, in fact, we're supposed to pay our taxes? And at that point, I was going through this systematic theology with my mentor, and I thought to myself, I should probably figure that out at some point. So this is the late 80s, early 90s. Right. And then through the 90s, I started picking up books that had to do with American founding. I started to uh, find books that had a lot of the quotes that you just read in. And the quotes are inspiring, Leighton. But the question I had really was, what does the Bible have to say about it? Right. And so with my systematic theology training, I realized around 2000 that I needed to just go through the Bible, look for all the verses that had to do with liberty and justice and rights and governing, and put them on the table and try and figure out for myself, where does that take you in terms of what does god expect from the nations and mm-hmm. does should christians be in, engaged in civil government and and when i got to the end of that journey i was uh, actually i was flabbergasted at how much information is actually in the bible and uh, and i started to incorporate that into my teaching and then around 2010 i started to realize that that approach of going to the bible first understanding the, th- the theology and then talking about how that was woven into the history that I really didn't see that in all the books I was reading. And so I felt like God was leading me to write a book and, uh, it took 10 years. And, uh, I finally got to the point where uh, it was released about a year ago.
1: So Mark, you, you draw an important distinction in your work that is missed by many people, and that is the distinction between the declaration of independence as in 1776, which you regard as, as very seminal to the founding of the American nation, obviously distinction between that and the constitution, which came along later, uh, I believe between about 1787 and 1791. Um, What's the importance of that distinction for you in terms of the founding of the the American nation and this covenant you talk about?
0: Yeah. So the constitution is simply our operating document. It's the how, and it's version 2.0. If you know your American history, you know that our first version were the Articles of Confederation. They turned out to have some weaknesses in that the founders are very concerned about giving a federal government too much control. But with the articles, they frankly didn't have enough control and the states were doing their own thing. So they got together in 1787, as you mentioned, to, to try and fix that. Uh, but a few people had done some pre-work and said, this isn't fixable. We've got to do something totally different. And then we got to the uh, the version we have today. But the question is, what informs the Constitution? What is the why behind America? Because the Constitution is the how. Right. And so the why is, in fact, the Declaration of Independence. And what I came to appreciate, Leighton, when I did all this research, was that the Declaration is not a, a Dear John letter to King George, you know, basically saying, right. we're leaving, here are the reasons why, see you later. It's really not what it was. What the founders did, Was they followed the same pattern as Old Testament Israel in establishing their nation officially in the eyes of God? That happened in Exodus 19 through 24, started with Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law. You gave that great John Adams quote. Basically, what they were saying is if you don't recognize this moral law, this law of nature and of nature's God, uh, everything, nothing good will come of it because that's the starting point. Right. And so what I realized is that, uh, when I took a closer look at the declaration, after I had teased out these principles, which we can talk more about, I realized the Declaration's actually a covenant. And it was right. a covenant that our founders made with God to start this nation. And, uh, and the, the theology that's wrapped on, uh, wrapped inside that declaration is just amazing. And we can unpack that some more, but that's the difference. Yeah. Declaration is the why, it's our American identity, and the Constitution is the how, it's how we're supposed to be operating.
1: I, I want to unpack that as you say, but before, before we go there, I wonder if you wouldn't mind, Mark, and I know you do this in the book, you talk a little bit about this word, this covenant, because it's a very special kind of relationship uh, with God, isn't it? And, but it's, but it's, it's foundational to what's, what's to the Declaration of Independence and really about proper governance of human beings in terms of uh, being a nation that that is proper in the sight of God. And uh, one of the really interesting things about your book I really liked is that uh, it, really t- it really reveals to us that all of the secrets, all the principles we need to have a, f- a proper functioning state are actually in the Bible. Would you mind just explaining a little bit more about this covenant concept? Because some people might not be familiar with it.
0: Yeah, so the word covenant, it's a—it's an old-fashioned term these days, but it's simply a contract. It's an agreement. And if I could draw a distinction to uh, or make an analogy to what we're talking about here, this is no different than a marriage covenant. So right. a lot of people listening to your show are probably married. So just follow me for a second on how a marriage com- a covenant actually gets consummated. There's four things that happen. The first thing is you acknowledge God and God's plan for marriage when you're in a marriage ceremony and the founders did that in the first paragraph they were in that case they were acknowledging god's plan for nations and how a nation should govern the first two paragraphs the you know the first really three or four sentences summarize the theology behind civil government the second thing you do in a in a uh, in a marriage is you appeal to god to bless the union and uh and the founders did the same thing if you look at the last paragraph of the declaration you'll see the distinct sentence that says uh with an appeal to heaven to the supreme judge of the world you know it's a, i'm, right. I'm yes. butchering it a little yes. bit yeah but it couldn't be more clear you know they're saying we need your help and of course they wouldn't need their help because they were standing up to the empire of the world at the time there's no reason why they should have been successful by the way uh the third providence. thing that you,
1: providence
0: yeah well i would say it's because they followed the biblical template yeah and so, but back to the marriage thing. So first you acknowledge God and his intention for marriage or his intention for nations. Second thing is you appeal for help. Third thing is you commit to it. And in a marriage, you commit by reciting vows and exchanging rings. It's a really big deal. It's, it's, the, <clears throat> it's the most important thing that you can do in that ceremony. The founders took it one step further because remember that last incredible sentence. Uh, You know, they basically say they're pledging their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honor, essentially to see the thing through. I don't know how much Mm -hmm. more committed you could be other than to sign the document, which is what they did, which Mm -hmm. immediately meant if they were caught, that they'd be hung for treason.
1: And and many, many of them were. I mean, it's a trail of tears, isn't it? That story is not told enough, is it? Most of the No, not, not a lot
0: of them survived the war. The yeah. handful that did became president. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then there's the last thing. The last thing that you do in a marriage is uh, think about what's the last thing that happens in a ceremony. The the pastor officiating turns the couple around and they say, for the first time, you know, in public, introducing, and in my case it was Mark and Charlene Burrell. <laughs> and and what are they doing? They're declaring publicly. That this right. marriage has taken place. That's a whole purpose for the marriage ceremony. Right. Well, the founders did the same thing. Number one, they named the document a declaration, <laughs> and then number two, they sent it around the colonies and to England for all to see that they were. This is what they were declaring, and uh, and Leighton clearly God honored the process they followed, which I submit is completely biblical, yeah. uh, because He allowed them uh, under overwhelming odds. Right. in order to uh, win the war and then start the nation. So that, those are principles to start a nation. Right. So we can talk more about principles to govern a nation, but, but those are, that's what happened in the Declaration yeah. of Independence.
1: And, and is it your thesis that, uh, that the founders were doing this intentionally, that is, uh, framing the Declaration in the context and in the form of this historical covenant that you talk about that's found in, in the Bible?
0: They absolutely did, and they weren't the first people to do it. One of the earliest known records uh, to do it that most historians recognize is the Pilgrim Landing in 1620. So recall what happened there. They were on their way to join the Jamestown colony, but the prevailing winds would not let them go south. They concluded that it was God's will to form a colony north where they had landed, which they named Plymouth. But there was a problem. There was no governing authority there. And so their pastor had taught them well, well, here's what you do if you're starting a new nation. You you establish a covenant. And if you read the Mayflower Compact, it's like one paragraph. It's not even that long. You'll see that they followed the same process. They acknowledged God, why they were there. They appealed to God for help. The whole thing starts with amen, which means let it be so. You know, it's basically appealing. And then they explain very clearly uh, their intent to form a civil body politic. They They commit to it. By signing the document, and of course they they declared it with the people that were there. It was done on the Mayflower. The, the ship uh, crew understood what they were doing. There was no internet or you know way to get it out, but they followed that same pattern. And so, the uh, with the uh, first Great Awakening and and all the pastors of that era, you know, reinforcing the importance of self-government, they knew what to do. They didn't want to do it, but they felt they were backed into a corner, and uh, and when it came time. They put their faith into practice and that's really what they were doing. They were putting their faith into practice and God honored, uh, their commitment.
1: Right. So we have this concept of a covenant that you've explained that's between a people and God, it goes all the way back to the old Testament. But then we have this other complicating feature that enters this covenant called government. Uh, and so is, is the government part of that covenant uh, or outside of that covenant? This seems to me an important, uh, concept. So I would say it's the way you
0: operationalize the, uh, the, the covenant. And so the, what I do in the book, and um, for folks reading it, I, I go into about seven principles that right. I tease out of looking at, you know, what God instructed the Jewish nation to do upon, you know, Moses essentially officiating the starting of the nation. That was right. the official start. And they they consented. Remember, they Moses came down and said, God says, if we follow this, Moral law, he'll bless us, and they all agreed that was giving their consent. That's where the term "under the consent of the governed" comes right. from. Yes, which is which is really interesting. If I go on a little theological detour, remember the Abrahamic. Yes, the, the, the no, Abrahamic no. covenant was unconditional, and so you got this great question: Why, why would the Jews uh, accept a deal conditional on their performance <laughs> for God to bless them? Because it was unconditional before that. My mentor used to always uh, make a joke about that you know why did they take that deal they should have like not taken the deal but the point is that's what you do if you're getting married or you're establishing a a community or a business or a church you know you mentioned i've been involved in starting churches that's what you do you write Mm -hmm. it down you sign it so essentially uh the government and whatever process you come up with is all in service to bring to life and and to realize the vision in your covenant. Mm-hmm. And and a government authority that that does not do that and in fact is governing immorally over a long period of time becomes a real problem because remember that was the operational principle behind right. the American founding. Right. They had concluded that the government had been governing immorally. Right. And so and
1: to use your analogy you talk about which is a great great one talking about the marriage covenant. Um the the importance of that is it It brings God into that relationship so that, uh, let's say if you, if you stray and you, and you cheat on your spouse, that's not as simple as, you know, doing something to hurt your spouse. You've also offended God. You've broken God's law. So applying that analogy to government, you go through, uh, you know, some of the history of American governance and you chart how at certain times, um, the American state has sort of gone astray and whenever it has it's, it's gone into, it's, it's landed in some trouble. Do you want to explain about that a little bit? I found this, this was very fascinating part of your book.
0: So, yeah, the, um, uh, if I talk about how do we get to where we are today, I think maybe that's what you're referring to the lead in. So, yeah, and that's the first chapter it's called the state of the union. And the subtitle is how you forget your covenant, which by the way, Israel did all the time. (laughs) And, and so, what happened there was a series of events and i i just hit the big events Uh, there's probably many more you could cite but in america the key event that seemed to trigger this departure from our christian roots was a ruling in 1947 that's basically this is where this this term separation of church and state was first expressed as a legal principle and the ironic thing is the the judge in that case hugo black who ironically did not have much experience as a as a judge, by the way. Uh, he basically said that, in the words of Jefferson, you know, we've got to keep separate the church and state. We've got to have this wall, um, and it has to be inseparable. And he's fa- in fact completely misquoting what Jefferson said in this private letter to the Danbury Baptist Church, who had asked him upon winning the presidency if the government would potentially encroach on the Danbury Baptist. Uh, uh, religion denomination because in virginia they were locking up pastors going down and evangelizing and so jefferson pens this wonderful response and i have have that section of it in the book where i basically see he says no the the government cannot do that but in 1947 hugo black twists it 180 degrees and says the church cannot encroach in governing affairs and within 15 years The um, prayer was determined to be unconstitutional. After 350 years of praying in schoolhouses in America, it was suddenly deemed unconstitutional. And then the next year, uh, Bible reading was deemed unconstitutional. And once that happened, you see the moral law, you know, that law of nature and of nature's God, which is a phrase that refers to the moral law, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been slowly hold from our public view and when that happens that quote from John Adams uh, right. you know you no longer have a moral nation and yeah. so it just doesn't work
1: that that talking about the Ten Commandments that reminds me of um something I read in one of Dennis Prager's book he's written a, a series of wonderful books one of them uh, is called the rational Bible and he talks about um the 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 Ten Commandments in a way that I never thought of them he said that these are basically uh, God's laws, that to the extent you follow them, you are free. You're free from the bondage of sin. And it seems to me that has particular application when we're talking about uh, the state. Because, um, you know, when people think of America, they think of freedom. When you go around the world, that's what people think of. I can tell you that's that's the impression yep. in Canada. But what's the source of the freedom? And the source of the freedom, I think, is 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 that is God's law and that covenant. And so, to the extent, I think, one of the themes of your book, if I have it right, is that to the extent that America has strayed from that covenant, um, um, then then the, then the people become less free. In other words, where where God is, people are free, and where God isn't, men tend to be. We tend to be slaves. Is that? Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And. Uh craig has got these 5-minute videos he's got. Oh yeah, ten they're of those brilliant aren't they. Yeah. He's got 10 of those, one for each of the 10 commandments and they're dynamite. I encourage yeah. your readers uh that's a quick way to 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 get what uh what you were describing. So the the moral law, and this is one of the things I learned in my personal journey is just how important the moral law is in everything. So we can say this, the moral law, number one, summarizes God's standard of righteousness. It tells us about God, about the God who loves us. And that's pretty important. Yeah. Number two, it shows us we can't measure up, which is pretty important because it should drive us to the foot of the cross and, and accept him. And then number three, to your point, if you follow the moral law, it's the best way for you to have a fulfilling and productive life where God will shower his blessings on you. I remember when my daughter, I've got four kids, and, and a real pivotal moment for me was when my then 20-year-old daughter said to me, I finally realized that the Ten Commandments are just there to help me. If I follow the Ten Commandments, I'll probably have a better life. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. And then lastly, the fourth intent of the Ten Commandments is it serves as the legal standard for all legitimate lawmaking. Yes. It literally is the rule of law. When you right. hear Mm -hmm. People talk about, we got to follow the rule of law, the rule of law. What progressives mean is, if I pass a law, if we pass a law, you've got to follow it. Yeah, Uh, That's that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that this divine law that permeates and sustains the universe, it's in effect at all times and at all places, and it must be respected. That is actually the rule of law that everything must be measured against.
1: I agree that progressives, what they really talk about is rule by law and not not rule rule of of law. Um and I want to go off on a bit of a tangent if you don't mind. I was thinking about uh this this uh, passage in, in in Matthew. I believe it's uh chapter 24 verse 19 that says that it's uh it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I wonder if the same could be true of a rich state. If that might be part of the problem because when you're talking about America, you're talking about really the richest nation in the history, of the most successful nation, arguably in the history uh, 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 in history period. Um, is that part of the problem? Is it difficult for a rich state to to conduct itself in a way so that uh, it's representative of the kingdom of God?
0: So it's certainly a pattern that if you look throughout history, you see affluent nations who God blesses, if they're not careful, they will um, take for granted what those those blessings are and how to secure those blessings. Uh, they start to spend more time in leisure than in working, and which is God, God has created us to work. That doesn't mean you have to do a nine-to-five job, but he's created us to do stuff and to do things through us that will bless others. And so when all this time is spent on recreation and you've got the money to do just about whatever you want, you, you don't have to lean on God as much. And and the rich man in that passage in Matthew 24, the idea is that they don't need God because money can buy almost anything that they they need. And, and I do think that's part of the cycle of nations. Mm-hmm. If you look back over history, you know, take Rome. Rome was once a very rich nation. And uh, Rome didn't fall in a day. But over time, they were overextended. They were immoral. They were invaded. Uh, very similar to what's happening in America today. So for me, and I and I say this as an engineer, by the way, because <laughs> I see patterns, right? And uh, and and th- there's just it's a very clear pattern. Right. And um, ideally, we can wake people up to realize that we've got to recommit to God. What I tell my you know fellow Americans is, the Constitution's important, policy's important, but let's just put those off to the side for a second. The real issue is. We have a bunch of our fellow citizens who fundamentally reject our national founding covenant, or they don't know it even exists because we never talk about it. We only talk about the constitution and we argue about policy. So this is what I'm trying to do. And it's the last chapter in the book. It's trying to uh, start a national conversation really about who are we as, as Americans, the why, the why behind the American founding and the wonderful vision captured in our declaration. And the Bible says, if, we, if my people who are called by my name repent uh, and turn away from their sin, he'll heal our land. And Layton, I'm convinced unless we take that step, all our best efforts will not yield God's blessing to help turn our, our country around. And yeah. that's, so that's the action part. No, of I the quite
1: book. agree. But th- is this part of um, the work that you're doing through the uh, Defend American Liberty Project?
0: Uh, it is. I read about
1: this uh, that the purpose is to educate Christians on biblical principles of liberty, rights and justice, and the resulting citizenship duty all Christians have to establish a just civil authority in the communities and nations where they are. Um, do you want to talk about uh, about that project a little bit? I know this is probably, I expect this is occupying a lot of your time besides your writing.
0: It is, that. that's where my, my pa- uh, passion and burden is. The more I talk to to people, especially pastors, they just don't know that they, they don't they haven't been taught. Many of them are so passionate about evangelism, which they should be, that they don't see the fact that this information is in the Bible. it's and and if you mine it out, which i've I've done, I've done the hard work of trying to pull it out and simplify it uh, to help provide all these these questions. and so, the, uh, the, the book is meant to be uh, an end-to-end kind of one-stop shop for pastors and church leaders who are looking for a reasonable biblical argument for why they should be involved in citizenship and why America is, in fact, a very special nation. Mm-hmm. I also include a lot of typical objections. Uh, one chap, I have a whole chapter on the objection that being involved in politics interferes with evangelism and and I show that uh in Deuteronomy 4 Moses actually tells the the Israelites that uh the purpose one of the purposes of you governing justly is the other nations of the world are going to see you being blessed and they're going to come check you out and and you need to be ready to tell them about me. that's exactly what he says in Deuteronomy 4. Right. So governing justly is actually an evangelistic strategy God used in the Old Testament right and and after all isn't that why people many of them uh came to america because they they wanted to to see and experience the blessing from our our system of government right and yet we we're not equipped to talk about it and so i'm trying to yeah to equip pastors church leaders primarily but of course i'll talk to any group who's interested in you know give me give me a good reasoned argument as to why the american founding was just and legitimate and what is my responsibility and, and you mentioned this is every Christian's responsibility, no matter where they live. This is not just right. an American thing. No. I just happen to be talking about the American founding covenant. Yeah. But if you live in Australia, you live in Canada, you live in Mexico, you, anywhere you live, you have the obligation to try to establish liberty and justice for all in that community.
1: Let's, uh, let's talk about the church for a moment, if we could, and its pl- sort of place in this which is, is vital. Um, we had a guest on our, on this program, an author named Eric Metaxas. You're probably familiar with his books. He's written a a recent one called letter to the American church. He'd also written a previous book, a biography of, uh, the late theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was tragically murdered by the Nazis. Um, but he talks about in the context of Bonhoeffer, uh, where Bonhoeffer was, uh, was trying to, uh, prevent Nazification of the church in Germany. And he draws, a, he draws an analogy to that. And what's going on in America and the Western churches, this is true of Canada uh, as well, and the, the, you know, the progressivism that's in the church that uh, people like me, uh, frankly, I consider anti-Christian, anti-bibli- anti-biblical. Um, how does that fit into this covenant that we're talking about? Because the church, you talk about the, the decision in 1947 which separate church from state. So the church has a central role in this covenant, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it really does. Ultimately, the church is responsible to be the the stewards of teaching the next generation. So I blame all of this on the church. And while I point at the church, I got three fingers pointing back at me, <laughs> yeah. which is why, you know, I, I feel like I need to do everything I can to, to rectify this. But uh, back to Erica. I love Metaxas. Uh, we've met. I've given him a copy of my book. I've read the two books you mentioned. And uh, the way I would think about his book versus my book, he and those two books that he wrote that you mentioned, which are excellent, right? He makes the moral and historical argument for why the church should get involved. He explains it morally, that it's uh, it's morally wrong and Christians should be offended by immorality. They should stand up for justice. And yes. of course, he makes the connection to the German church in the 1930s and, and saying, listen, to the church today is doing exactly what the German church did in the 1930s in the face of evil. They just kept kept singing louder when the trains were going by with the Jews on their way to the concentration camps. What's different about my book is I make the theological argument, right? and I see it as a perfect complement to his letter to the American church. Uh, so again, I'm an engineer. Uh, the book is a little bit dense. I, I, if you got through it, you you know this. But it's meant to be that very systematic, rational, biblical approach to this question of what does God expect from nations? And who does he expect to step forward and lead? And what does that leadership look like? That's what I try right. and answer yeah. uh, in the book. So it's a perfect complement to what Eric is doing.
1: And it's it's not just, your book is not just an historical uh, record or a biblical account. It has a very specific... Um modern applications. Uh, in fact, um, uh, let's talk about three big ones that are, that are facing both Canada and the United States. One is, you know, the border crisis. Uh, you know, the, you, you say that, uh, that the Bible provides clear guidance on the role of governments in protecting their citizens. And regarding the border crisis, you note that, that God desires sovereign, uh, separate na- uh, nations that are fruitful and just, and that governments have a responsibility to protect the inalienable, the inalienable rights. Uh, their citizens, even if that means building a wall. You want to talk about your, about this covenant in the context of a modern issue like that border crisis that's going on both in the United States and Canada.
0: Yeah. So again, an analogy is helpful here. Uh, And and a lot of this, you can always go right to the family and ask the question, what is the job of the mom and the dad uh, when they've got a bunch of kids? I had four kids. What was my responsibility as the father of, of my little home, my castle? Uh, the first thing I'm responsible for is to you know feed them, clothe them, uh, provide shelter, and keep them safe. Right. I'm responsible to do that. Now, if someone knocks at the door and I let them in and they they seem fine on the outset and we have a nice conversation, I'm showing hospitality to this visitor. They're coming into my home. but if if they start to, uh, you know, do inappropriate things, that person has shown me that they don't respect, the covenant relationship that me and my wife have and the family that I'm trying to protect in my home. Mm -hmm. I don't have a wall. I've got a front door and it's got a lock in it. Uh, The same is absolutely true for a nation, let alone the fact, you know, just put aside, you see this in Israel, Old Testament Israel. Of course, things were a little different. You had to have a wall to protect yourself against invading armies, but it's the same principle. Right. And so why should Christians be concerned about all these uh illegal aliens crossing our border and coming to our our nation first thing is they don't agree with in many cases have no idea of our covenant so while i don't have a, a problem bringing them into the nation just like it would invite a stranger into my home if they're not going to govern uh, conduct themselves in a way that matches what my wife and i expect if you're in my home uh, then we've got a problem right but these, these aliens that are coming in, these foreigners, they don't understand our system of government and, and the covenant that informs our constitution. So I should vet them just like I vet my, a person coming into my home. If I'm responsible for the nation, I should be vetting them and making sure that they understand what it means to be an American. Right. So, so there's that. But there's another problem. Think about what's happening to these other nations that are losing their people. God doesn't want that. God wants lots of nations around the world. He wants them to follow the pattern of Israel and govern based on a covenant. And if they do that, God will bless them. Right. So that vision of government is what America should be exporting. And of course, we should be doing that by supporting evangelists around the world, missions. But these missions ultimately need to work towards teaching their converts how to govern themselves So eventually they can turn the heart of the nation over to god that last part is not happening right people don't even think about it that way they just want to you know win people to christ and that's great that's great but you know what does god expect Mm -hmm. we learn in genesis 9 that he expects nations to govern justly
1: right um another modern issue uh that that the this covenant has application to are transgender rights and here in your book you offer a unique perspective on the transgender issue would you want to explicate on that
0: well it's it's a similar you know if you start with what does the bible say about the world around us and how god created it he created us male and female that's just the way it is and uh we're created uniquely with unique benefits unique gifts uh, and and god set it up that way so that you have Uh, you know, women generally are more in touch with emotions. Men are not, you know, and this is why we desperately need, I desperately need my wife to let me know when, you know, there's some emotional uh, stress in our family that I need to be aware of. And men, you know, we tend to be more logical, sequential. Doesn't mean there can't be crossover. You know, I'm not trying to pigeonhole people, Sure. but God designed us that way for a reason so that we could have the best possible chance at living productive and ultimately happy lives while we're here on earth. Mm-hmm. And so this transgender movement at its core is challenging the fact that God created us male and female and the impacts of doing that with young children who were so impressionable. Uh, we're going to, we're all ready, but we're going to uh, see a lot of problems down the road because they they didn't get the proper training on what is their role from a
1: biblical worldview. And again, this is a a consequence you say of, uh, you know, the, the, distortion or moving away from the, the principles of that original covenant. Right. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. The, the fact that there's a
1: moral law and, and God set it up. Right. And here's another one you talk about that maybe might surprise a people more than say something like the, the transgender situation, maybe less obvious. Is debt? You talk about uh, a, a fresh perspective on on uh, on debt and biblical guidance on government spending. You want to talk about that a little bit? I found this was kind of fascinating. I wasn't really expecting it, but but you you put this in the, in the context of the covenant uh, in a very interesting way. Would you mind uh, talking about that a little bit?
0: Yes. Yeah, so again, if you go to the family illustration, the ultimate goal of a family is to to be financially secure. You know, it's not that we're supposed to be rich, but we're supposed to steward the money that God gives us. And here again, the Bible gives us principles on how to do this if we would just follow them. Right. And and that means working hard in order to uh, accumulate and manage property, perhaps invest or create, you know, write a book uh, or or whatever in order to um, generate an income. And you have a responsibility. A mom and a dad has a responsibility to uh, be able to accumulate wealth so that they can take care of their children and ultimately, ideally take care of themselves in their retirement years and not be a burden to their children. In other words, not passing on all this debt to their children. And and the same is true of a nation. And the founders were actually concerned. They were really concerned about this. Uh, They really did not view rampant spending as uh, a way to be prosperous, they understood that you you had to have your financial house in order. They had some huge problems. you know, Hamilton, you know, coming up with the the idea of a right. national Bank and mm-hmm. figuring all that out, that, that that was just genius what they did. But at the end of the day, you can't spend more than what you take in. And as a nation, if if your people understand that they're created by God to do good works, to have vocations that they become passionate about, that God will bless them. the wealth that will be generated in that nation will be unbelievable. We saw a little bit of that during the Trump years. You know, very right. quickly, a lot of people suddenly had more money and wealth to be able to do things. All they were doing was following God's principles for uh, in the case of of the Trump administration, mm-hmm. uh, trying to uh, govern in a more fiscally biblical way. I don't even want to say conservative. I don't say it's biblical. Right. Just don't spend more than what you're taking in, and uh, and God will bless you. He'll yeah. bless your family. He'll bless your nation if you follow those principles.
1: This uh, stewardship idea that you mentioned is one that uh, is alien to a lot of people nowadays. It goes back to the idea, and actually, it's it, obviously, Christ talks about it, and uh, it teaches about it, actually. Um, but it, it begins with the recognition that um, you don't own anything that actually all of your wealth and all your possessions actually belong to a higher power. And you're just, you're just looking after those things. And to the extent that you, that you, that you, that you follow that principle, um, you're actually going to be more blessed. And, and this is actually borne out by history, isn't it?
0: That absolutely is uh, borne out. And this is really one of the ways it's, it's an amazing thing. If you follow God's principles for, you know, working hard, don't spend more than you earn, uh, be content with what you have. God will continue to bless you, especially if you're a, a giver. Uh, you right. know, I've seen this. Yes. If you give 10% or more than 10%, ideally it's more than 10%. You're generous with your money. Uh, God will continue to bless you. Uh, and, and it's the most amazing thing. It's like, how does this work? <laughs> and uh, and if you have a whole nation or, you know, a significant portion of a nation, all rowing in the same direction. That way, you know, all working hard, all wanting to honor God, all being generous with their wealth when people, uh, you know, their neighbor uh, needs help. Yeah, God will just overwhelm that nation, that community, that mm-hmm. individual with blessing, and it's it's just simply following the biblical template that we're given.
1: Right, and it's almost what you were saying is if we even if we just boiled it down to Christ's second commandment we follow that, we could probably live pretty peacefully, you know, uh, yeah. but, uh, and, and, and again, that's part of the covenant too, isn't it? Um, and it's something that we've gotten, gotten away from. Uh, one other one that, that, uh, piece that you wrote that I found really interesting is you wrote something about Anheuser Bush, uh, and this whole public sure about, you know, Dylan Mulvaney, their spokesperson, um, how does that relate to, to the idea of this covenant?
0: Yeah. So uh, folks, I think know what happened there. Uh, you know, Anheuser-Busch was thinking that they would um, invest money and and sponsor uh, Dylan, who was a man who had transitioned to a woman. And in this case, this is just really, really bad judgment because most of the people drinking Bud Light uh, are very patriotic Americans. And, uh, and so if you step back and look at that, you've got to a major company who essentially is ignoring moral and ethical behavior and, and rewarding it and, and sponsoring it. And you had the significant, you know, cross-section of the population who just said, this is more too much than we can handle. There are lots of other beers we can drink. <laughs> and, and so it's the result of a major corporation unintentionally, Really rejecting the moral and ethical standard uh, again, the moral law, and it had huge negative ramifications uh, Mm -hmm. for their bottom line as well. It should, and so this is where, as individuals and businesses and companies, uh, I encourage them: you you have to have a pro-liberty agenda versus a pro-LGBT and and you know your ENI program or dni or whatever right. they are calling sure. it uh yeah. it, you the only way you can truly respect everyone is by extending liberty to everyone mm-hmm. uh, which is of course biblical right and yeah. uh, if you do that you'll stay out of trouble except from the progressives the you know the far left that that is really trying to cram this uh this progressive a uh, far left progressive agenda down our throats uh, but it's it's already starting to backfire on them right. i think the anheuser-busch incident was just an early warning signal of just what will happen if companies continue down that path.
1: It is encouraging in a sense though, because it does show that the, that, that the covenant is still there, that people are still, it's still relevant. People are aware of it fundamentally. Uh, It is encouraging in that sense. I mean, even though we don't wish any ill necessarily on people who work at Anheuser-Busch, we don't want people to lose their jobs or anything like that. But it is still a recognition that on a principled level, on a moral level, Um, it's a recognition that many Americans, uh, and Canadians for that matter, who participate in that boycott, they still have a sense of right and wrong of what's, what's proper in God's sight and what is, what is vile and sinful. Right. I, would you agree with that? Yeah. In
0: fact, if I go to the declaration, the first paragraph and that reference to the law of nature and of nature's God, if I could unpack that a little bit, Sure. the phrase law of nature refers to that moral law which people should be able to see and rationally deduce from their conscience. In other words, it should be obvious that I shouldn't kill my neighbor, that I shouldn't steal his stuff, and that I shouldn't lie to him. You know, I should should be honest with him. Why should that be obvious? Because those things seem morally obvious. And so that phrase, law of nature, is saying, that there's this moral law and and you should know what it is just by observing you know cultural dynamics and living with your neighbor the second part of that phrase of nature's god is a direct reference to the moral law as described by the by the bible and i have the quote in the book that that proves that right. and so what that sentence is saying is and this gets back to my original question remember you asked me how did why did i start this it's because i saw the uh was the whole revolution biblically justifiable? The reason it was was because the framers, the, the founders basically said there's this law of nature and of nature's God, the moral law, and that is the foundation for everything. We believe that, you know, we, we have inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and governments are are given their power by the consent of the government, you know, a short theological summary. Right. And then they go on to say that the king had governed immorally they don't give three examples, not five examples, not 10 examples. They give 27 examples <laughs> of how the king had governed immorally. And based on all that evidence, they said he has, and the government has violated the moral law, the law of nature and of nature's God so many times. And it's been the patient suffering you know, of, of a people to put up with this. But at some point, uh, it's our duty to to throw off such measures and to implement governments that we think will will provide our safety and our happiness. Yeah. It's very similar to a marriage where one partner has become abusive, or you know, fill in the blank, whatever. I can't. I don't want you to to get divorced, but if that partner over a long period of time is abusing uh, the other spouse then that spouse has a right to walk away for right. their own physical and mental safety. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the principle. Yeah. And, uh, and it's legitimate, it's biblical. And, and that's what happened.
1: Yeah, Interesting. Uh, what you just said sort of reminds me of a friend of mine who's not a Christian, but he remarked, uh, why is it that all of the people who are quote unquote freedom fighters are always Christians? Uh, and unfortunately I couldn't, ex- I didn't have an answer for him. Uh, because, uh, you know, outside of faith, I, I don't think, I don't think it can be explained. Um, another, th- uh, piece that you wrote that was really interesting is this, uh, and this is going back a little bit back to last February, and this gets at some of the, some of the traditions, uh, uh, cultural traditions in the West and in America, you know, is president's day under attack? You wrote a piece about this and you explain that, um, this is part of the progressive attack on that covenant. You want to explain about that a little bit? Because it has broader implications than just President's Day. It applies also to things like Independence Day, Christmas, Easter, all of that, right? All of those things, Thanksgiving, all these things that are cultural traditions that are connected to the covenant that you write about in your book, right?
0: Yeah, so if we look at Israel, and again, everything you need to know about this, you can learn principles from the nation of Israel. And so what did God do after they established Israel? What, what did he do to help reinforce the most important principles? They established the seven feasts that, right. that occur every year throughout the year. Each feast has, a, has an important meaning. And the founders were really aware of this when America started. Their question was, what will be our traditions? Israel's got the feasts, and these were critical around, and they were central to Jewish life. Right. What will be the American Uh, corollary to that. And so over the years, we have figured some out. One of the early ones was Thanksgiving, this idea of uh, celebrating, in this case, the harvest. So it was celebrated in the fall and uh, that became an early one. Christmas is a holiday. And and actually, Christmas wasn't celebrated that much until the last uh, 70 or 80 years. Uh, But obviously, it's become a huge, uh, a big deal. Uh, But President's Day, President's Day is a great example of honoring a few presidents, Washington, who legitimately is the father of the nation. If we didn't have Washington, I don't think we'd have America. And then Lincoln, who saved America in the Civil War. They both had birthdays in February, so we established uh, President's Day as a, a holiday in February. These two men were central in founding and helping to save America. And their stories should be told, you know, what what was unique about Washington, what was unique about Lincoln. But if you take away President's Day, you know, you're taking away one more little opportunity to plant a seed, just like the Jewish feasts had these, you know, these feasts, these seven rituals that they would go through. They were all opportunities to remind the jewish people about god and how faithful he was how we delivered them how we loved them how we wanted to tabernacle with them and um uh and so this is why it's so dangerous to to get rid of these these various holidays because mm. they're getting rid of the traditions that help provide teachable moments and that help us realize our american identity right. so which is wrapped yeah. up in our covenant
1: right they're, they're an essential part of the covenant that you talk about in the book Yep. Um, So, um, uh, this is the part of the show where we sort of, uh, uh, wrap up and we call it the reading list. We've learned so much from talking with you, Mark. Uh, I'm really grateful that, that you took this time with us. Um, it won't surprise you that your book is our featured book. Uh, we also have another book, uh, if you can call it a book, it's called the declaration of independence. And this is, um, uh, one that is narrated by, by Keith Verge. And uh, I, I think it's worth it's worth reading and worth worth listening to. Of course, uh, people will learn a lot more about um, the the deeper meanings of what's in the Declaration uh, by reading your book. But I but I just I included that because I thought it'd be worthwhile just for people go to, to go to the original text, just like they would if they're interested in theology. You know, go read the Bible, right? Uh, and the last one I have before I turn it over to you, we mentioned um, Dennis Prager earlier in this program who's written a host of wonderful books, but one that I thought had some application here is one that he wrote in the late 1990s called still the best hope it's described as a, as a visionary book. And I just thought that going back and reading this book again, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd read it about 10 years ago. I thought, wow, this is written in the late nineties, but it's so prescient. And I think it is for the same reason that your book is in that, um, it's founded in, in biblical concepts and a very clear understanding of history. And I thought that the way that he describes the way he sees America, even though he's Jewish and not a Christian, um, was very similar. He still has a very deep understanding of this covenant. Uh, and so I thought that book would be an interesting companion to the one that you've written. Um, so I'll turn it over to you now, obviously you're very well read and, uh, did a lot of research for your own book. Are there any, uh, books or resources or, or uh, even parts of the Bible that that you think would be very useful for people to read, so that they could gain a better understanding of both your book and the topics that we've been discussing today.
0: So, so the first thing I want to mention to your audience is the next time they uh, you have July Fourth. Uh, I realize you're uh, a, a Canadian audience, but what we're starting to do is we read the Declaration aloud as a family oh, on brilliant. July Fourth. Yeah, that's brilliant. And uh, we go around, we take terms. We've been doing that for a few years now. And I'll tell you what—that is so meaningful. It's like reciting your marriage vows, yeah. and uh, there's usually not a dry eye by the time you get done. And so, revisiting the covenant—I I, so I like that you mentioned some of these books where they where they uh, the audio book where they uh, read the declaration, and it's it's timeless and it applies to every nation, even though it was written in America. Uh, the theology I'm convinced can apply anywhere and should apply yeah. anywhere. The second thing is. Um, uh, there is a book by Larry Arne called The Founder's Key, and it is about the Declaration of Independence and his take. Now, Larry Arne's the president of Hillsdale College. Uh, Hillsdale actually helped me out a little bit with my book. I had a chance meeting with Larry, and uh, and he's turned out to be a great friend and mentor. And uh, I just, all things Hillsdale, I would <laughs> I would recommend to people. They have online classes you can take for free. They're excellent. Uh, and then the last one I'll mention is, uh, I am writing a Cliff Note version, a more readable version of uh, what's in um, Discovering the American, or Rediscovering the American Covenant. Right now, the title's called "The Duty Is Ours," um. and what I'm trying to reinforce here is, in the shortest possible messaging, exactly what is it that God expects from the nations. How does God expect nations to form? How does God expect nations to govern? Who does he expect to lead? What should Christians do in nations and communities where government is governing justly? What should they do when government's not governing, governing unjustly? What should they do? And then lastly, how do you turn a wayward nation back to God? Those are the handful of questions that I'm very succinctly answering in the book, and I'm I'm targeting to have it out early next year. Uh, as a as a simplified version, something you could put in a pastor's hands that they could get through maybe in 45 minutes. Because as you know, Leighton, my book is a little bit heavy. Uh the, the good news is there's lots of information in it. Yeah. And it's very biblical. Uh, but you know it's like 350 pages. So it's yeah. uh, there's a lot there. But but this other one's coming. Uh the duty is ours. And um uh, uh, I'm hoping that'll it'll be a blessing to people.
1: Well I look forward to, to, to reading it. I, I actually, um, I didn't find that, that your book was, was, was dense. I thought, I thought it, it's very logical. Um, I suppose one could view it as uh, a kind of a reference manual, but I think that's not doing justice to it because there, there are a lot of historical narratives in it that are quite captivating. Yeah, uh, the stories that you draw from the Bible and also from American history, uh, I think are, are very stunning and relevant. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I don't think you're. Maybe you're doing your book a bit of an injustice. I didn't find it dense at all. Uh, one thing we know for certain is there's nothing dense about its author. Uh, we've really enjoyed being with you today, um, and we miss you. We wish you much con- continued success with all of your many projects and with your with your books. Please keep them coming. And uh, we just want to thank you so much for being our special guest here today on Gray Matter.
0: Thanks for having me, Leighton. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Mark.